Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Well, we're so excited to have Whit Ayers here, a veteran Republican pollster uh, known for being the pollster to Marco Rubio. And we have Kristen uh, from Radio Row in Cleveland, where you could hear lots of noise in the background. So I'm so excited we all got to get together. Sounds good, Marty. So, Whit, you are so, not in Cleveland. You have returned. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your reaction so far to what you've been seeing in Cleveland? Well, it not has not exactly been seamless and professional. Um, there have been a lot of glitches, and that's probably understandable uh, since... Our prospective nominee, actually our nominee now, uh, has uh, basically followed a pattern of following his own instincts uh, and downplaying the contributions of people who have done this before. Uh, And we're seeing the result of it. So, um, you know, so tell us your reaction as uh, someone who's worked with Marco Rubio for a while. He he gave a video address last night on Wednesday night. It's Thursday now that we're recording this. It didn't seem like he was particularly excited to be doing it. And, you know, he wasn't I mean, he was clear in who he was not supporting. He was clear in making some some positive comments about Trump, but didn't quite go so far as to say he had a full-throated endorsement of Donald Trump. I mean, what do you what do you make of that? Well, he has made very clear over the course of the primary campaign that he has very stark differences with Donald Trump on the best way forward uh, and what the Republican Party ought to stand for. Uh, that said, Marco is a team player, uh, and he is uh, supporting the team. Uh, as have most of the nomin- most of the Republican candidates who took a pledge to support the ultimate nominee, is uh, fulfilling his pledge. So, with one of the big sort of themes around this convention is this question of unity, and you know whether the party should get behind Donald Trump and how vocal they should be about it. But of course. You know, Donald Trump has done and said a lot of things that have perhaps made it harder for the party to expand its reach beyond uh, its core constituencies or those that he is bringing into the party are not necessarily the demographic groups that are growing over the long term. 
what's your read on whether or not this convention over the long term um, has had any sort of glimmers of hope for a GOP that can reach out to some of these groups that I know you've written a lot about as being important to the future of the party? Donald Trump and his team have clearly made the calculation that Republicans will be able to win at least one more presidential election uh, by running up their numbers among white voters uh, and forsaking support from Hispanics, African Americans, Asians, and other non-white voters. Uh, that's clearly a losing strategy in the long run. Uh, I happen to think it's likely to be a losing strategy in the short run, but clearly uh, Mr. Trump has decided that there may be at least one more Republican victory uh, achievable by winning a larger and larger percentage of a smaller and smaller portion of the electorate, that being white voters. Now, this being a, you know, year where we, at this convention, were nominating Donald Trump. This was a sort of inconceivable outcome a couple of months ago. As someone who was doing polling inside of a competing presidential campaign, what were the things, the signs and things you saw in the data that began to tell you, look, this is for real, this, this could actually be happening? Were there things that, you know, you were looking at in the data while you were working for Rubio, um, it began to give you hints somewhere along the line uh, that this, this was really potentially going to happen? We had the numbers last September uh, that suggested that Donald Trump had one of the highest favorable ratings of any of the candidates in the field. The three highest favorable ratings were held by Marco Rubio, Donald Trump, and... Can we guess who the third one is? Ben Carson. <laughs> yep. Ben Carson had the highest favorable rating of any of them. Yep, that was true for a really, really long time. We looked at the high favorable numbers for Ben Carson and for Donald Trump, and we said neither one of them knows anything about politics, neither one of them knows anything about policy, and once the spotlight gets turned on they will fade. We were exactly right about Ben Carson and exactly wrong about Donald Trump. Um, there are a number of factors that led to Donald Trump's emergence as the nominee, a combination of frustration with Washington, frustration with economic stagnation for the middle class, frustration with demographic and cultural change, uh, the mobilization of a large number of uh, non-ideological, non-college-educated whites who haven't voted in Republican primaries before. But it would be a mistake to underestimate the importance of one other factor. Uh, and that's what makes Donald Trump unique. That factor is the importance of celebrity and personality. Donald Trump has been a household name in this country for the better part of a quarter century. There are 1980 movies that had references to Donald Trump because everybody knew who he was. And so having universal name recognition placed Donald Trump in a different category and then the willingness to say virtually anything uh, to rouse people up 
uh, put him in a different category from any other of the long shot candidates. And it ended up working out for him in a Republican primary. That said, let's recognize that he gained 14 million votes in a Republican primary to get elected president. He's going to need the support of more than four times that many people, some 65 million voters to get elected president. Wait, you've worked in politics for a while. You've worked on presidential campaigns. And one of the big things uh, that we're going to be talking about, certainly on this show in the next couple of weeks, is the convention bounce and how durable it is, how important it is. Uh, you know, we're going to have Donald Trump's speech this week. We're at the Republican convention. Next week is immediately we go into the Democratic convention. And, you know, there's always talk about this bounce. Do you think that Donald Trump is, uh, you know, do you think that any bounce that he's likely to get out of this convention is durable? Or uh, sort of do you expect that we really shouldn't be looking at or paying attention to many of these polls until after the Democratic convention is over as well? Before the convention, Hillary Clinton had, according to the average of most credible polls, somewhere around a mid-single-digit lead, four or five or six points. In other words, her advantage before the convention was comparable to the margin by which Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney in 2012 of four points, or the margin that he beat John McCain in 2008 of seven points. Normally, a well-run convention will get a nominee, a convention bounce afterwards of four to five percentage points. Uh, we will see if this convention does that for Donald Trump. A lot of that is going to rest on the speech that he gives tonight. But the real polls to watch are those that are taken about a week or so after the Democratic convention, basically after both sides have had their opportunity to make their case. Uh, so I would be looking at polls mid-August to determine the effect of both conventions on their nominees. So where do you think uh, Republicans go from here, in, never mind the long term, in the short and medium term? I mean, watching the convention from home, I find it, you know, the, a lot of the language really troubling. I mean, as I found Donald Trump's language this entire election season troubling, the you know racist, sexist, and hateful language that he uses, whether or not he believes it, I don't know, but that he uses and that he allows his supporters to use so in his name so cavalierly is really troubling. And I know that that doesn't reflect Republican establishment, um, yet there are Republican establishment folks speaking and, and attending the convention who are, you know, coming, coming to an endorsement in some way, you know, whether they get all the way there or they get just shy of saying the words or whether they're, you know, just getting swept up with the, with the message. When you look at folks like Giuliani or Christie, people who were not really considered so extreme socially when they were in office. Um, I, you know, I, I, I just don't know how I'm supposed to feel about some of the Republican establishment who decide that they prefer Trump over Clinton, given some of the language that he uses. So what do you, what do you say to folks who, who have that feeling? There are going to be a lot of Republican candidates who are going to have to figure out how to run for reelection with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. Uh, in the case of Republicans in 
blue states or blue districts, uh, the call is pretty easy. They will denounce Trump. Uh, it gets pretty easy in deep red states, strong Republican states. Uh, they simply will support him. Uh, the challenge comes for Republicans running for re-election in purple or swing states because they will need people who support Donald Trump to vote for them, but they will also need people who support Hillary Clinton to vote for them if they're going to get reelected. We are starting to see now hints of the largest amount of split ticket voting that we've seen since the 1980s when a lot of Southern Democrats voted for Ronald Reagan at the top of the ticket and Democrats down the ticket. We did one survey for Congressman Bob Dole, the Republican running for re-election in uh, northern Chicago, where Hillary Clinton was ahead of Donald Trump by 16 points, but Bob Dole was ahead of his Democratic challenger by seven, a net 23-point swing in favor of the Republican incumbent. We've seen similar double-digit margins of difference between Donald Trump's standing and the Republican incumbent standing with Marco Rubio in the Florida Senate race, with Pat Toomey in the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, with Kelly Ayotte in the New Hampshire Senate race. So I think it's going to be very interesting to watch how a lot of these Republican incumbents handle this, but we're seeing at least initial evidence of very substantial ticket splitting come November. Um. Sorry, I don't know if Kristen, you had something else. Um, it, you know, uh, but do you think, though, that, you know, folks who are sort of middle of the road, like folks who say, well, I don't endorse him, but I'm going to vote for him, or, you know, he, he's not my preferred candidate, but Hillary Clinton is X, Y, and Z, things that are that I don't like. Do you, do you think that regardless of what, how purple or blue or red your district is, that those positions don't, they're not going to age well? I mean, I, is the calculation like if Trump loses, then, you know, then it doesn't matter. But if he wins and does something really terrible, and even if he doesn't win, even if he loses, um, it, you know, I, do those do those comments age well in the next go round when you're trying to, you know, take a new crack at expanding the tent and reaching out to minorities and women and and so on? If you have a lot of folks on the record saying, you know, Trump said all this stuff, but I, I didn't stand up clear, you know, very clearly to him and tell him that those positions were wrong. There clearly is danger that. Uh, Donald Trump will push Hispanic voting patterns to look more like African-American voting patterns. That is, rather than 70% support for the Democrat, it becomes 90 or 95% support for the Democrat. The danger is also there among millennials who are just coming of political age and currently are Democratic-leaning. But the real question becomes whether or not Trump becomes viewed as a brand separate from the Republican brand, or whether they become merged over the course of the campaign. Right now, Trump looks like his own brand, as distinct from the Republican brand. And of course, Democrats will try to merge the two. But we won't be able to answer that question very effectively until after November. And we'll be able to see whether or not uh, Trump has become synonymous with Republican 
or whether voters continue to make a distinction between the two. Wait, one of the big questions that pollsters are always facing is what is turnout going to look like? You know, we can have this discussion about folks who are in the middle. Do they split tickets? Do they vote for one party or the other? Um, are they swing voters? But there's also the question of do they swing between turning out and not turning out? Um, what are you? What are your thoughts about how pollsters should be thinking through this electorate and the turnout and what the weighting should look like, given that there's so much negativity and that could cut both ways. It could either mean lots of people are tuned into this election, they're freaked out, they participate, or it could mean lots of depressed people staying home. How does a pollster navigate this really kind of volatile feeling electorate? Very carefully (laughs) and very deliberately. There is a lot of suspicion that very negative campaigns reduce turnout. I have not found that to be the case in the past. The kinds of campaigns, at least in my experience, that have generated the highest turnout are those that have two characteristics. One is they are very close races, according to the polls. And the second is there are enormous consequences, enormous differences if one candidate wins or the other candidate wins. Right now, it looks like both of those criteria will describe the presidential election, where it's going to be relatively close and there's going to be enormous consequence depending upon who wins. So I would expect at this point a high turnout, Uh, of voters across the country, and we'll see if that indeed turns out to be the case. Um, But from a polling perspective, I think our best bet is to believe what people tell us, that if they say they're going to vote, we better include them. Uh, (laughs) We can outsmart ourselves by trying to impose a number of other criteria where we try to guess who's going to turn out. I think we're better off just taking what they tell us and going with that. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Guerin on the show yesterday. I interviewed him here in the sound booth yesterday, and he said what keeps him up at night is this notion of turnout, that there hasn't been two cycles in a row where turnout has dropped. Turnout may drop, but it then doesn't, you know, it doesn't drop for a second time, I think, in, in raw numbers of people who voted. And so he was concerned, you know, maybe is this the year where that happens? Um, so this is this is very much on everybody's mind. Yep, Jeff is a very fine pollster, and um, I've got a lot of respect for him and his judgment. I think uh, it would certainly be a worry if I were on the Democratic side, Uh, but right now it looks to me like this is likely to be a high turnout rather than a low turnout election. So, of course, you know, turnout is not evenly distributed across demographic groups, and one of the questions I get asked a lot is about millennials specifically. Um, that these are voters who don't necessarily all have a pattern of voting in the past, particularly the very youngest millennials who have not even been legally allowed to vote because maybe they were 16 during the last election. Um, Do you think that we can expect, you know, for instance, higher turnout among, say, white working class voters who may have felt disenfranchised by the last election, maybe not loving the choice between Obama and Romney? You know, will we see higher turnout among certain groups, but possibly lower turnout? out among others, you know, a group like, say, millennials. 
Well, Kristen, you are the expert on the millennial vote, so I, I don't know that I have anything to say. I don't have a monopoly on this. I don't have a monopoly. <laughs> I'm here to learn. I'm, I'm asking questions. I want to learn from other smart people. <laughs> I, I do think you're going to have a significantly higher turnout of blue-collar white voters, uh, which could very well put states like Pennsylvania uh, into play or, or maybe Ohio, uh, which has gone Democrat the last two elections. But two sides get to play this game. Um, Republicans like to talk about dynamic scoring of economic changes like tax law, where you double the price on yachts, but it doesn't double the revenue because you sell fewer yachts. I think in the case of turnout, the best job in American politics this year goes to the Democratic operative charged with increasing Hispanic turnout to stop Donald Trump. Uh, he's certainly made, given plenty of reason for Hispanics to turn out, and that might in turn put states in play like Arizona uh, for the Democrats that have not been in play before. So I think you're likely to see a very high turnout among blue-collar whites, counterbalance somewhat, but a higher turnout among non-whites, particularly Hispanics, that could scramble the Electoral College deck. So uh, it, before we wrap up, if you could tell us a little bit wit about your firm, how you got into polling and advice you'd have for a lot of our listeners are folks in grad school or early on in their careers and folks who want to come into polling. What's your, what are, is your advice for them? Well, I ended up getting a lot of degrees in political science, a bachelor's uh, in, from Davidson College, and then a master's and doctoral degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, I was on the faculty at the University of South Carolina, where I started doing polling on the side. The first poll uh, I ever got was given to me by one Joe Wilson, whom people may remember from a certain Obama uh, State of the Union address. I do, I do. <laughs> Joe gave me my first poll in 1982 when he was a campaign manager for the local congressman, Floyd Spence. Uh, I joined the governor's staff, uh, Governor Carol Campbell in South Carolina, and was a budget and policy director for him, and discovered that I Love doing the practical side of political science, like the polling and policy work, uh, better than the academic side. So I started my firm in, in 1991 uh, and have been fortunate to work with a number of, of really stellar candidates, uh, Republicans over the years, uh, people like uh, not just Carol Campbell, but Paul Coverdell from Georgia, Bill Frist from Tennessee, Lamar Alexander, his uh, presidential race in '96. Uh, and people subsequently, Sam and Bill Haslam, the governor of Tennessee, Marco Rubio. Uh, and it's been a fabulous career. I've really enjoyed it. I have no interest in stopping doing it anytime soon. Uh, I would like to have the opportunity to elect a Republican president someday. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, hopefully I'll be around long enough to see it happen. Oh, here, here, Whit. Here, here. <laughs> So before we, um, I, I, I want to edit it back in. I meant to ask you, what are your thoughts with, so uh, Rubio had his video, Pence had hit, I thought, a very strong, warm speech, but all of it was eclipsed by Ted Cruz and his speech. What's your take? Um, did it read the same to you as it did to folks in the hall who obviously seem to take it differently? 
I think Ted Cruz's speech will go over very well with the anti-Trump conservatives who feel like uh, somebody finally stood up to Donald Trump. Uh, it obviously did not go over well with the strong Trump supporters, uh, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how it goes over with the party stalwarts who may not be enthusiastic about Trump, but who believe that you should support the nominee of your party and you should support your team and should, you should live up to a pledge if you take a pledge to support the nominee. Uh, for those people, Ted Cruz's speech uh, will verify the rap against him, uh, that he doesn't care about the party, that he doesn't care about the team, that all he cares about is what's good for Ted. So we'll see how that plays in the long run, but it was, uh, it was uh, quite a moment for a convention. Uh, uh, the only comparable one in my lifetime, and it goes back a long ways, was Nelson Rockefeller's speech to the 1964 Goldwater Convention, uh, where he was roundly booed throughout much of the speech. Great. What was fascinating about that? What was fascinating about that speech, by the way, is we here uh, working in the media at this convention, you know, we got an embargoed copy of the speech about an hour before it went on. You know, you, got, you, you get the embargoed copy of all of the different speeches. Uh, and so immediately I'm scrolling through my email. The only one I want to look at is the Ted Cruz speech. And the first thing I notice is I, I do like a quick like search for the, the word Trump. You know, it only comes up in that first line. I'd like to congratulate Donald Trump on winning. And I hit reply all to, to all of the other folks on the sort of ABC News chain. Like, uh, hey, hey, guys, he, this speech doesn't mention Trump like at all. And in fact, includes a bunch of lines that seem like they're going to be a problem. But this was the sort of thing that, you know, like you can't tweet about. So it was like just sitting there waiting and watching, <laughs> watching this speech, like knowing, knowing what's about to happen. Like, <laughs> all right, he's only got a couple more paragraphs left. These people are about to figure it out. They're about to figure out what's happening. <laughs> it was very surreal watching uh, it in real time and knowing like this is about to blow up. And these people yep. in the hall, hall do not realize What's coming? It was fascinating. <laughs> it must have been absolutely fascinating knowing what's coming. The amazing thing to me is that the Trump campaign team allowed him to get up in prime time and give that speech without assurance that he was going to endorse Trump and without even knowing or recognizing that he was going to take shots at Trump during the course of the speech. Uh, Donald Trump presents himself as uh, a man who negotiates good deals. That doesn't sound like a particularly good deal to me. No, and it's a terrible exactly. deal that for Mike Pence, right? I mean, it was a t who had really, I thought, a very nice, warm speech that would have appealed to all kinds of different people. Oh, sure. It was a fine speech. It was just way overshadowed by Ted Cruz stealing the spotlight yet again. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Whit. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, uh, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about how people can find you, find you on Twitter, find more about your firm? Yes, we are at Whit Ayers, and we are, the firm is North Star Opinion. Uh, the website is uh, northstaropinion.com, uh, and would welcome anyone coming to the website or shooting us an email, Whit at North Star Opinion, and uh, continuing the conversation.
but I wish you folks, uh, particularly Kristen, uh, good luck tonight sitting in the hall. Uh, it should be a Thank fascinating you. evening. It sure will be. Okay, thanks again. Surely. So long, folks. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Kristen, I'll call you right back. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switch to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.